1: Hi, and welcome back to the podcast, Tell Me This. I am your host, Carrie Borkowski, and we are at episode three, and we're calling it Not Who, But How. And this title really came out of a, a research study that was done by Google, but also written about in the New York Times Magazine, what Google learned from its quest to build the perfect team. So we will unpack that a little bit later, and so before we get to that, however, I wanted to... Think back to episode two, where we started to really get into what it means to belong. What does this concept of belonging mean, and really put some words to this difficult um, idea? Because I I do think that sometimes we, as a community, as individuals, struggle to understand this word belonging. It feels maybe too emotional or too soft or touchy feely for some people, and so we really want to make sure we're putting some words that make sense to folks to this concept. So if you remember from the episode, we talked about this idea of a sense of connectedness to people, places, culture, and communities, a perception that we are valued by our community as individuals with our unique contributions. So tell me this, do you remember what the challenge was for last week? Do you remember what I asked you to do or to stretch and reach for after you listened to the episode? Well, if you remember, Brene Brown suggests that part of being experiencing true belonging and this this high perception or self perception of belonging is about bringing your authentic self. And the way do we we get to our authentic selves is to identify our, values. And that was part of the challenge for last week. So I'm wondering, did you did you identify a value? Did you devise a plan and practice? Or did you at least devise a plan to practice and train this value? If you did, we'd love to hear your story. So make sure you shoot me an email um, as I'd love to, to hear about it and maybe share it anonymously, of course, on an upcoming podcast. Um, I would love if if you'll indulge me for a minute to share a success I had in practicing my own values. So if you remember, I think it was in episode one um, where I shared that two values that I've been working hard on are are curiosity and authenticity. And yesterday in church, I attend a unitarian, a Uni- Unitarian Universalist church um, in town, and I was invited to give the message or the sermon yesterday. And I have to say, 10 years ago or so, for lots of reasons, I don't think I could have stood up in front of a group of people in a church and shared a message um, of any kind, really. I could read scriptures or read from a a passage, but not a a message or a sermon. And I practiced my value of authenticity, and I really took a risk and showed some vulnerability because, to be honest, I trust and believe that the folks in this congregation, this community— do value our individual contributions and our uniqueness, and so I, I did it. I shared the message, and I have to say I was delighted because after the service, um, I was asked to sort of stand there with our minister and you know greet people in the morning. And there were several people that shook my hand or gave me a hug and thanked me for sharing part of myself with them. And I have to tell you, as someone who has spent a lot of years. Um, struggling to do that and practicing how to do that, I was just really happy. So if I can do it, anybody can do it. So please, if if you haven't been thinking about your values, if you haven't identified that one important value, really take some time to do that again this week. So on today's podcast, we are going to explore a couple of things. So I should step back for a second and say that ordinarily when I work with my own students on their research or when they're thinking about a question or a problem, one thing we really think about is why should we care about this research? Why are others going to care about this question or this problem? What does the curiosity or the challenge mean or why does it matter today? Um, And so today in our podcast... Um, We are going to talk a little bit more about why we should care about belonging. Certainly, we care about belonging because for a lot of us, when it's done right, when it sort of hits that right note, it feels good. It's good to be in spaces that you're valued, um, that you're considered unique, and that you contribute to a space that you're in. But additionally, we need to remember, and this is what we're going to talk about a little bit today. What happens when there are significant barriers to belonging? What happens to individuals and kids and teachers, CEOs and leaders when they don't experience belonging? And I hope that from this conversation, you'll see that belonging does matter. um, And it's not because it's this feel good thing. Um, It really has serious consequences um, if we don't attend to it. Now, for anyone who knows me, I don't like to sit in the problem too long. I definitely like to shift to those solutions. So we will definitely unpack our motivation for talking and and acting on belonging. But we will also wrap up the podcast with, again, that article from the New York Times that I mentioned that Google did a couple of years ago where they talk about psychological safety and promoting belonging. And so we will wrap up the podcast on a positive note and sort of what we can be thinking about and doing in our organizations, in our families, and in our classrooms to promote these these senses of connection and belonging. So the goals for the podcast today are to talk about and unpack some of the barriers to belonging and those consequences of low perception of belonging. We will explore the definition of psychological safety and why it might matter to belonging And then we will also talk about the role of group norms and goals in building psychological safety. So I hope you'll stick around. I think we've got a great podcast ahead of us, and we'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to Tell Me This, episode three, where we're talking about not who, but how, and sort of exploring organizations, classrooms, schools, and other spaces, and thinking about what happens when belonging doesn't occur, and then thinking about something called psychological safety that we will unpack later. As is always the case in our podcast, I like to start things off with a story, and um, I really didn't have, you know, a story. I was trying to think, where can I illustrate psychological safety? Hmm, come up with something. And then I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that and, and really didn't come up with something explicitly, as you can imagine, um, about psychological safety. But I will tell you this. After my grandmother passed, um, as you might expect, I spent a lot of time reminiscing, remember remembering the many times I spent with her and my grandpa. So many memories, little ones, big ones, exciting, funny, sad, and some just honestly quiet and still. And now that I've started this podcast, and more recently I actually started a blog, that'll that will be more on that soon, I spent some time thinking about her and how she lived. I'm really trying to pinpoint, practically speaking, how she lived her values. And as I was pondering this idea of living your truth and enacting your values, it reminded me of sitting and having a meal with her. It really did not matter which meal. The content or the context may have changed, but the patterns and the themes at a meal with her and really my grandfather were pretty similar. So here's the story. There's actually two parts to it. I remember one morning, my brother and I were staying with my grandparents. My parents had taken a trip. They didn't often go away. So I was pretty excited that that they did and that we got to stay with my grandparents. I woke up to the smell of bacon and toast permeating the second floor of my grandparents' home. I remember sleepily wandering into the kitchen. My grandmother was busy buttering the toast, flipping the bacon onto a plate. And as she turned around, she was humming some tune that was coming from the radio. There was always some kind of music on in their house. She said with a delighted voice and a big smile, Well, good morning, sleepyhead. How'd you sleep? I probably rubbed my tired eyes and plopped down at the table. I was only in elementary school or maybe middle school. My grandfather and brother also came into this small and cozy kitchen and sat around their table. I remember listening to their easy-listening music and chatting about everything and nothing. The birds outside their kitchen window, what we were going to do with our day, my Pop-Pop's work schedule, everything and nothing, really. I tell this story. Why do I tell this story? It's because I remember literally and figuratively having a seat at the table. I had a voice. I was seen. I could contribute to the conversation and my grandmother would respond with delight, laughter, kindness, love, and usually a hug. That is just who she was, always present. Even when she was moving through the kitchen, getting more juice, bacon, or buttered toast, making my pop-ups lunch for work, she found a way to focus on us, to contribute to our conversations, to pay attention to what we were saying or asking, and just be present. My grandmother knew how to show up with what Kate Braystrup calls a loving heart. And I'm going to pause in the story because if you don't know this book here, if you need me by Kate Braystrup, it's B-R-A-E-S-T-R-U-P. It's this fantastic book. It's really not very long. I know we all have busy schedules and it's an easy read. And there's a passage in here. She's a Unitarian minister and she actually works with the warden service um, like out in the forest, in the wilderness, where they actually are rescuing people in pretty intense situations. And she's talking to a couple of the guys about what she does. And she says, I'm not really here to keep you from freaking out. I'm here to be with you while you freak out, or grieve, or laugh, or suffer, or sing. It is a ministry of presence, it is showing up with a loving heart. And it is really, really cool. You know, as I said in previous podcasts, I don't know that my grandmother would say she was doing that. But I definitely think she was showing up and being present with a loving heart. So back to the story. The amazing thing about this story is I remember this past summer, the last time my kiddos spent some time with my grandmother She had a meal with them at her kitchen table in her home. Not the same place, but the same patterns. I caught myself sitting, eating, and watching, really observing. At 96, and with kids who are under 7, she has still got it. She is asking them questions. Colby, tell me this. Henry, come give me a hug. Or Sarah, are you enjoying your whatever Sarah was eating at the time? My grandmother always knew how to show up with a loving heart, to be present even when she may not have been feeling her best self. I miss her, and I miss those moments. I know this may seem too flowery for some, but there was an energy about my grandmother that is indescribable. I could feel it the moment I was in her presence, and I would carry it with me when I left for a while, anyway. I don't know what that is joy, authentic, true belonging. I don't, I really don't know. I don't know that it matters, except that I try every day to bring a little bit of those feelings to my family, to my kids, to my students, and the people I, I encounter. I'm a work in progress, so I often fall flat on my face, but I brush myself off and try again. So tell me this, how is it possible that my grandmother knew how to cultivate belonging and could do it through a simple act of a meal? She did it over and over again for her entire life. She made it look like nothing, easy, automatic. What did she know or learn? what did my grandmother know how did she make it look so authentic like it was just automatic and natural for her you know honestly now that she's gone I I wish I had asked her that we didn't ever have a conversation so intentional. So I'm sort of less left guessing and wondering and sort of putting those breadcrumbs together. I will tell you though, I think she she had a sort of, you know, sense or instinct that it did matter. And so I want to turn the conversation just briefly um, to some ideas about why belonging is so important and what the literature says about what happens when, you know, there's an absence of belonging. Um, You know, if our young people do not experience connections, do not engage with others in authentic connections and relationships where they are cared for and they care for others, this inhibits their ability to develop their own perception of belonging, to figure out how to create that belonging and cultivate that belonging with other people. You know, things like stigma and shame, labels that create that stigma Feelings of not belonging can lead to shame and worry that you're not good enough. Shame is a sense that you're bad or not good or wrong. Guilt is a focus on an action being bad. So if something happens at work, maybe you had a, you know, a tough interaction with someone. If you're feeling shame about that instance, you're saying your self-talk is. I'm a bad person, right? I I am not good. I I am wrong. If you're feeling guilty about that situation, you are saying to yourself, I made a judgment in error. I, I made an error in judgment, sorry. Or I made a bad decision. Do you see the difference? I am a bad person. I made a bad decision. In that second instance, It's not about you being good or bad. It's about the decision that was made. And so if our kids and our colleagues and our students are not feeling a sense of belonging, they can feel a lot more shame and not know how to call it guilt when it really is guilt versus shame. A lack of belonging also creates a sense of outsidedness or a sense of being different. Um, if you don't feel like your value, that you're not making a contribution, you always feel like you're on the outside and that you're not worthy and that you're not able to receive or be provided with some value and some love. And we see this across lots of contexts, whether it's in an education context, whether it's in a more um, businessy kind of context, or just in our communities. I mean, it doesn't even have to be you know, school or business. It could be at your, you know, team, you know, your kids play on teams or if you play on teams or if you attend a church or whatever your hobby is and you have communities. These feelings of being an outsider can happen anywhere. And so cultivating belonging in all of these spaces matters. If we think about our teachers, um, you know, these ideas around feeling like they, they don't identify as an expert or they're not good enough at a particular practice or that the leadership isn't valuing the contributions that they're ma- making even though they're trying so hard. This can lead to feelings of dissatisfaction, which then lead to things like high turnover and attrition. And this is a problem on multiple levels because on the one hand, you have human beings, our teachers, who are not happy in their professional world, who are now leaving these spaces and having to find other spaces, you know. not to mention the ripple effect that this might have on their families. Additionally, we know that the literature also suggests, and I'm sure we've experienced it, when teachers leave mid-year, at the end of the year, how do our kids feel? They hate it. I mean, they don't wanna see teachers that they've had leave. And so you have the teacher effect, the teacher's family effect, you have the student effect. And if it's a small neighborhood or even just that local area that's supported by that school, you can have neighborhood effects. So belonging for one person, cultivating a sense of belonging for one teacher has a huge ripple effect into their family, community and their students. Low perceptions of belonging can also happen when we're feeling socially excluded, if we are categorized. Um, Again, those labels and stereotyping, they just lead to things like lower self-esteem, lower self-understanding, low self-efficacy that you feel like you don't have the ability to to complete something or do something. It really can lead to psychological pain, emotional trauma, you know, limited access and opportunity. And more recently, there's been some work around something called thwarted belongingness. And this has really come come about where it's really equated to these feelings of rejection. Um, and it and it results in or can result in loneliness uh, because individuals have too few connections this absence of what we call reciprocal caring relationships. And I find this really interesting because this idea, so belonging, we often talk about making somebody else feel like they belong in a space, right? That we value their contribution. This idea of reciprocal caring relationship goes two ways. It goes sort of bi-directional, if you will. This is where an individual feels cared about, but also can demonstrate care for somebody else. So belonging really is more than just pointed, you know, one way uh, towards one person. Thwarted belongingness can be influenced by family conflict, um, people living alone, fewer social supports, um, and just interpreting other people's behaviors as rejection. And as we talked about in the first episode, you know, technology has been wonderful in connecting people across the town, the country, and the world, but we need to be really mindful and careful about what those connections really mean because even in an age of the these tremendous connections, people are reporting higher levels of loneliness, and perhaps it's because those social supports that they're able to make in social media aren't, you know, authentic, they aren't true you aren't really sharing who you really are in those spaces and so it's really important to be mindful of that. And so I say all of this and I really, you know, I have a tr- I have trouble in these conversations because it it feels really negative, but at the same time I think we have to spend a little time exploring these consequences and these outcomes because as I said, we shouldn't just be cultivating belonging and talking about belonging and figuring out what belonging means in different contexts because it's a feel-good sort of thing, because the research says it promotes deeper knowledge and connection. But we should, we should also be thinking and talking about belonging and doing more with respect to belonging because there are some serious consequences of not following through. I mean, if I told you that the absence of something was going to lead to or has contributed to higher rates of loneliness, higher rates of suicide, drug addiction, um, uh, shame. Wouldn't you want to know how to fix that? How to address it? Well, one way to do that is to attend to belonging with individuals, with groups, with your students, and with all the spaces in which you're a part. And so I share this these facts, these ideas, with you, just to remind us of how important this work uh, continues to be. Okay, welcome back. Well, I'm sorry if that last segment of the podcast was a little bit of a downer. Um, I just think it's important that we attend to those important outcomes and consequences of the absence of belonging or low or what's now being called thwarted belonging. Um, So just as a reminder, we are talking about belonging and some of the barriers to belonging. We are going to talk a little bit now about something called psychological safety and then also this idea of group norms and goals and why these might matter to building psychological safety and how all of this relates to belonging. Um, I'll give away a little bit of the the punchline right now. And I think what I'm discovering is whether intentional or not, my grandmother in her meals with us had actually figured out how to establish psychological safety way before we were talking about it in the literature. So it's kind of cool. All right, so what is this thing, you know, psychological safety? Um, it is called, it's, it's this idea of a group culture where there's a shared belief that the team is safe for inter- interpersonal risk-taking, and this comes from someone named Amy Edmondson out of the Harvard Business School. So I want to I repeat that because I think it's really important. It's establishing or the presence of a group culture where there is a shared belief that the team is safe for interpersonal risk-taking. So they're able to, if there's some psychological safety, they're able to develop this interpersonal trust and mutual respect and be comfortable with being themselves. Sounds a lot like belonging, doesn't it? If you remember Brene Brown talking about belonging being this ability to come to a group where you are able to show your true authentic self and that group is able to sort of take that in and value your true authentic self. So what is this article all about? So interestingly enough, and it was an article uh, published in the New York Times Magazine. I was trying to find the date for you. Um, it's by here we go. It's Charles Duhigg, D-U-H-I-G-G, and I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing that name correctly. It was it's it's a little uh, older. It was published in February of 2016, and this was a Google study that was conducted several you know many several years ago, probably almost five years ago now. Um, and it was over 2,000 employees, I believe, and Google was really trying to figure out what makes the perfect team, you know, what makes those high-performing teams. And a lot of the hypotheses going into this study, as the researchers admit, were focused on the attributes of the teammates. So back to the, the title of the episode, this, this um, you know, being about who or how, right? So not who, but how. And that's really where, where it was coming from. Because what they found is as they tracked these different teams that were high performing and maybe lower performing or less performing, shall we say, um, they were noticing that the characteristics of the people, whether they were male or female, education background, experience with this kind of work, their experience or tenure at Google didn't seem to be to be making the difference what they found was that the difference, the patterns in these high-performing teams or what they were jokingly calling these perfect teams were around group goals and norms. And there were two things that emerged as being most critical to having high-performing teams. One was what they called conversational turn-taking. And what they noticed in this pattern was that each Group member had equal time speaking. Now, this definition of equal speaking time didn't necessarily refer to the actual meeting itself. It meant that each group member had an equal voice in the process. So it could have very well been the face to face meeting, the conference call, the Zoom call, or I guess for Google, it would be the Google chat um, or a Google room. or giving voice or it could have been giving voice to some assignment so contributing you know different pieces of a project or a project proposal so conversational turn taking the other one that kept cropping up as a pattern across these high performing groups was something that the researchers called social sensitivity and this was defined as an individual's ability to read someone or the room with regard to the climate, the tone, being able to read someone's eyes and know what's going on. And once they picked up these patterns, the researchers unpacked some of this a little bit more. They started testing it a little bit more and keeping track of Conversations and and people's voices in the projects, and additionally, they did some extra research on the social sensitivity. And apparently, I didn't I didn't read too much about it, but you could certainly Google it if you wanted to. Ha, sorry, no pun intended. Um, but there's actually a test where they can look at someone's eyes and sort of figure out, um, you know, with a series of questions and figure out their ability to read a room, and so. It's quite interesting and important that even at places like Google, where we would often believe that it has to be the intelligence, the experience, the graduate degree or the undergraduate degree that this person and persons have that make them high performing teams, when in fact it was the dynamics of the team. And in particular, it was about how they were engaging with each other conversationally and any one member's ability to read the room and sort of make adjustments when necessary. So we can bridge the gap um, between psychological and sociological sense of belonging because these play a huge part in supporting connectedness. If we are thinking about uh, the idea of cultivating a sense of belonging in higher education, for example, We can think about research from Meehan and Howell that was in 2018 that identified the importance of regular and clear communication, relationships that provide genuine concern and empathy for challenges, maybe that's learning how to read a room, and trusting and respectful relationships. So even though the researchers at Google were calling it conversational turn-taking and social sensitivity, I think you can see that there are common themes across these two articles that would suggest that these are really important to cultivating belonging, and so um, I hope that you will take a look at this this Google article, "What Google Learned from Its Quest to Build the Perfect Team." Um, again, this is it's in the um, New York New York Magazine, Charles Duhigg D U H I G G. It is available online. I don't think you have to have a subscription to the New York Times. Um, And I want to circle back um, one more time to my grandmother and think about that story that I told earlier in the podcast. So if we think about conversational turn taking and social sensitivity, maybe that's what she had. If I think about that conversation when I was a kid sitting at her kitchen table in there, um little corner of their house with my grandfather my grandmother and my brother N- i don't remember anybody dominating the conversation i mean i can't know for sure if we had sort of equal turn at the table but my guess on upon estimating is that i bet it was pretty close and i i'm certainly sure and comfortable saying that my grandmother definitely had social sensitivity Um, She could definitely read a room. Even when I would try to hide something, that woman just had a sense about her. So, you know, I asked you earlier, why do I think my grandmother was able to do that? What did she know that maybe helped her to create those sort of spaces in her house for belonging? Well, it seems like it was conversational turn-taking and social sensitivity at work, right? We may not have called it that when I was a kid, but it seems like she had figured that out. All right. Welcome back to episode three of the Tell Me This podcast. Thanks so much for sticking around. Uh, If you remember, we were talking about barriers to belonging. We talked a little bit about psychological safety and the Google study, trying to figure out what makes their team so high performing. And we also talked a little bit about sort of group dynamics and group norms And this week, as you're sort of moving through your spaces and your comings and goings, let's try to shift our mindset and maybe our intentions towards dialogue rather than discussion. Dialogue would be this idea of inviting and uh, valuing multiple perspectives, sort of flattening the hierarchy, if you will, and giving folks um, some mutual respect in those conversations um, if you're usually a talker, try to be a listener this week in those meetings. And if you're usually the quiet observer, just try to talk a little bit more. I know for our introverts, that can be so hard. One tip, ask a question. If you're worried about giving your opinion, just come up with some sort of question. Write it down on your notebook and ask it. That's definitely a good way to get in there. Um, let's practice a little little empathy this week and pay attention to body language and what your teammates are saying. And if you sense that something is off but are not sure what, check in. Ask somebody. You know, just lean over to your colleague or to your student or to your neighbor and and figure out what's going on. Um, As I said earlier, my grandmother may not have intended to cultivate belonging in the ways that we've talked, but I can assure you that she was using things like conversational turn-taking and and giving us all a chance to contribute our voices. And certainly she used a high degree of social sensitivity to manage most rooms that she came into and most conversations that she engaged in. So I hope you have a great week. I hope you're able to shift some of your focus from discussions and debates towards dialogue and Practice a little bit of empathy with your colleagues this week and cultivate some belonging. Have a great week and stay tuned for episode four coming up uh, next week. Thanks.
0: Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time?